everyone, welcome back to the More Than Headlines new series. This is our second episode of Machino History or Food Immigrant Restaurant series. As one of the main philosophies behind this podcast, we believe that the food culture is not only a display of dishes, but also a complex and intertwined history of cultural, politics, religions, and business operations. In this podcast series, we will meet different immigrant restaurant owners from a diverse range of cultures in North America at the intersection of food diversity, family-run business operations, and learn the unique history behind every owner's immigrant story. I'm Yolanda, the podcast coordinator, and I work with Justin, our project lead of the interview series. Now, I can't wait to share the new story with all of you. Justin, do you mind telling us more about the restaurant that you've just interviewed? Of course, Yolanda. Thanks again for inviting me to the discussion today. The restaurant that I interviewed was Ajisa, which is a traditional Japanese restaurant located in the Carrisdale community in Vancouver, Canada, home to some of the city's finest sushi and sashimi. Oh, Ajisa interests me a lot, but I don't know too much about that restaurant. Would you like to share more about things like the environment and the chef you interviewed? It was a sunny afternoon in early June. After all the hustle of the midday street had subsided, I turned into a small lane covered with cool shade. Sliding the quaint wooden door on the side and walking into a room. This pocket-sized restaurant has a long wooden bar on top of which was stacked with all kinds of fresh, delicious sashimi covered in pristine glasses. On the side, several staff were enjoying the tea and chatting lightly in Japanese. Then I met Steve, the chef of this fine restaurant, dressed in a dark blue traditional sushi chef coat in cotton and linen blend. Like other restaurateurs in our series, Ajisai is also an immigrant, right? So can you tell us a bit about his story? Of course. In fact, as the first generation of Japanese Canadians in his family, Steve told me that he was born and raised in Burnaby, British Columbia, and has been living in Vancouver all his life. Both of his parents immigrated from Japan. His father was born in Japan and came to Canada when he was in high school. So that was a long time ago, and his mother came over when she was an adult. On his father's side, like most of the Japanese immigrants in the west coast of Canada, they worked as fishermen in Japanese fishing villages, which was before World War II and the Japanese internment camps. This is an intriguing story. As an immigrant in Vancouver, I mean. As a person in a minority group, Asian like us, has anything special happened to this restaurant owner? Well, Steve did talk about his childhood experience living in Vancouver with his family as a minority, like the Chinese, Italians, and Koreans who live in their own diasporic communities in North America. They mainly live in the Japanese Canadian communities in the Greater Vancouver area. Steve mentioned his childhood memory of living in Powell Street in Vancouver, which was a flourishing mixed-use area where most Japanese Canadians lived and operated business there with affordable rental accommodation, rich in history since the 1890s. Of course, that was before the World War II and the introduction of internment camps. Until now, the Powell Street Japanese Festival every year in August is one of the longest-running community arts and culture festivals in Canada. 
Well, I'm sure that's a lot of good memories for Steve, and maybe for more Japanese Canadians in Vancouver, growing up or living there at that time. However, World War II totally destructured their lives with devastating effects. Yes, I agree with you, Yolanda. What was really unfortunate was how innocent Japanese immigrants in Canada were treated during World War II. According to the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia, we found out starting from December 8th in 1941, which was only one day after the Pearl Harbor attack, wartime blackout measures went into effect all along the BC coast in Canada, with widespread fear and animosity toward anyone of Japanese descent, mainly the coastal fishers who were mostly Japanese. Later on. The Canadian government confiscated their fishing boats and even property, like houses, and sold them to the white population. The innocent Japanese immigrants found themselves in internment camps throughout the interior region of British Columbia. Some men were separated from their families and were forced to work in work crews, in railroad building and sugar beet farms. As Steve told me, after the war, the Japanese found all their property to be stolen by the Canadian government, and the only choice for them was to either go back to Japan or to move into the crowded enclaves in urban Vancouver. It was truly a devastating and humiliating experience. Even though the Canadian government officially apologized in 1988 with reparations. It has such a generational impact on the Japanese community. Seeing how Japanese Canadians like Steve's family gradually recover and thrive from the trauma is amazing, and it is the power of inclusion of multiculturalism without prejudice. Now let's move on to some lighter parts of today's discussion. Justin, could you tell us more about the food in a Japanese sushi bar? Of course, the culture delicacy is also my favorite part. A Japanese sushi bar has one of the finest and most traditional sushi in Vancouver. It's very interesting to note that the restaurant does not have a hot kitchen. However, it doesn't limit them from creating the most meticulously made sushi, where more than twenty types of sashimi are used. Steve told me that they don't do crazy fusion dishes. Instead, they only serve the most fresh and traditional sashimi sushi. One signature dish would be aji, or Japanese horse mackerel. In addition, according to Vancouver Magazine, some of the popular ones include yumeshiso roll that perfectly combines the tartness of preserved plum with shiso's unique flavor, as well as the kanibatara, which is a sweet crab meat sushi in Osaka style. Steve also emphasized the traditional ingredients that he uses, which includes oba or shiso leaf, plum paste, and yuzu. Wow, it seems that Ajisa is truly a model of Japanese craftsmanship. In fact, I am a big fan of Japanese food. I often find and try new Japanese restaurants in Singapore. I love sashimi, wooden, and sushi. My interest in food led me to search for more information about the food culture. One article that impressed me was an article published by the Department of Japanese Studies at my university, National University of Singapore, about the Japanese food. Professor Morita introduced something new to me. For example, the origins of sushi can be traced back to the rice field of Southeast Asia, when people experimented with fermenting and 
preserving fish in rice. Ramen originated in China, but it became more popular in Japan after World War II, when Japan faced food shortages and imported large quantities of wheat from the U.S. Oops, sorry if I lost track there. Let's go back to the topic. Our restaurant owner for Ajisai. What is the vision of operating such a restaurant in North American city? Solely for integration, or does he have more ambitious goals? Definitely, Steve did talk a lot about the reasons for operating a sushi bar in the Carrisdale community and some of his visions too. One of the biggest reasons for opening a traditional Japanese sushi bar, he said, is to preserve the Japanese food culture in Vancouver. There are more than five Japanese restaurants just in the Carrisdale neighborhood in Vancouver. However, they are mostly not run by Japanese, and a lot of the dishes are modified due to domestic preferences. No offense, Steve said, but he does want to introduce the most original Japanese sushi and sashimi culture to people from all cultural backgrounds in Vancouver. Steve told me that the Japanese cultural delicacy is getting better in a way in Vancouver because there are more omakase opening up and more Japanese restaurants that are more specialized on the single type of Japanese dish with more traditionality and proficiency. Steve said that he doesn't want too many ambitious goals. What he wanted most is really just seeing how small restaurants like Ajisa continue to thrive in the post-pandemic era, when all the costs are increasing and people are still not dining as often as before the pandemic. But time will heal. He chuckled. Yes, I hope so too. I do have an optimistic view of the food industry around the world, because it best exemplified how unique and diverse every culture is. What are the challenges for Steve for operating the sushi bar as a minority? Well, I think that's a complicated question for Steve. He said his minority identity could go both ways. Some challenges are definitely language barriers, lack of knowledge about the foreign country and culture, and not really knowing how to operate a restaurant in Canada with all the different regulations and competitions. What could be worse is even racism back then. However, looking from another perspective, he said. Being a minority did give him a competitive advantage in having certain knowledge of a special technique and offering the most unique dish in the community. In addition, the pandemic's impact on Steve and his sushi bar is also profound. It made him remodel the way of operating such a traditional restaurant. With more and more takeouts, he had to redesign the menu to satisfy takeouts and still provide the most traditional and fresh dish that he could serve. He also started to learn to use social media to spread the word and attract more customers. He also experienced the labor shortage problem, where a lot of staff members went back to Japan for a long term. It is always hard to operate a small business, especially for minorities. Personally, after hearing so much from Steve's story, I'm very interested in discovering more about Japanese culture. Justin, after our interview, how do you think the Japanese food culture is linked to family values? That's a very interesting question. I remember that Steve did say that food plays a crucial role in Japanese culture. Japanese are picky, he said, and mannerism of perfection, order, and being meticulous are what come out and exemplified in the food craftsmanship.
Food and small restaurants have always been a big part of life and enjoyment in Japan, where the prices are more reasonable and there are more choices too. Steve also mentioned that their conservative view toward cultural delicacy and Japanese food in general also demonstrated the Japanese full preservation of culture, techniques, and traditions. Lastly, like a lot of Asian countries, sharing and respect are also big parts of the Japanese family food culture. What Ajisa and Steve try to bring out to the people, or the Japanese traditional cuisine preservation overall, are not only about the food itself, but also the influences of Japanese cultural values, history, migrations, and business operations. That's an insightful thought of you, Justin. It also inspired me to think about East Asian culture overall. As a person born and grown up in an East Asian country, I was always taught what is the right manner to meet the expectations. As you mentioned, to be perfect. This kind of culture, in my opinion, affects the food culture. Exactly. In a lot of East Asian food cultures, the meaning and intent behind every ritual and tradition of the food culture is deeply intertwined with the social environment and expectations to show respect, humbleness, and the right manner in front of the people who are sharing the food with you. All right, I think that would bring us to the end of our discussion today, Yolanda. Thank you again for today's discussion for me to bring up and share the story of Ajisa. And Steve to the Munching on History episode. Food is always a perfect way of discovering a new culture, meeting new friends, and connecting with your family. We will continue to discover and enjoy the beauty of authentic food culture, immigrant story, and history. Please stay tuned for our future episodes at Youth Peace Symposium.